you know, basically how awful all this was and how unnecessary it all was and how many lives had just been shattered uh, by his actions that day. And, you know, I won't say I got angry or, or upset, but, you know, I, I, I got pensive about it. Like I began to like think about like there was just so many other things that could have happened that day than what he chose to do. And so I think the, the, that that would be the one overriding emotion that I always uh, remember was just the senselessness of it all. It would be tough to believe somebody could shoot a six-month-old baby in the head, a defenseless baby to reach under and just pull the trigger. And like I said, and this is where it comes into play. The man in front of them, in front of the jury, didn't seem like that kind of guy. You know, like I said, he was well-dressed, well-behaved, well-spoken. And so I think the jury just on their own said, this can't be because nobody could do that. podcast where we dig up forgotten homicide cases from rural communities small towns and far off distances relive these violent and sometimes weird cases with the prosecution i'm your host henry valdez i'm a writer storyteller and son of a district attorney who grew up watching my father try some of the most historic cases in new mexico thank you for coming back and giving us a chance to continue this story I'd like to apologize for the long duration between episodes. We had some personal things come up, but we're back, and I appreciate your patience. Here is episode four of the Chimayo Massacre. A Sith piano radiates a single note like the beginning of a futuristic sci-fi opera. The title card swoops in, Turner Home Entertainment. Two more title cards in tow, another Turner, followed by CNN, in metallic chrome lettering with computer-generated lighting reflecting off the corners. A dramatic introduction, better suited for the beginning of a movie rather than the start of a special news report. But CNN was more than the news. It was hypnotic. The early 1990s was the beginning of the news and information consumption that we are accustomed to today. And it started with CNN. But that was kind of the, the, the introduction of the 24 hour news cycle. And I remember we had a name for it. We'd call it, I got CNN-itis, you know, where you would just be watching the news um, on what was happening in, in Iraq. You know, you'd just be watching it all night long. And so people were getting these unprecedented looks at events as they were happening because before that, news was 30 minutes long and there was weather and sports. You were getting your daily news maybe, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day. And all of a sudden, the press, because of cable TV, 
was able to delve into uh, these issues for hours and hours, 24 hours a day. And so, yeah, I, I do think it was uh, kind of a, a time when, when America was looking and digesting information in a manner that it hadn't done so previously. Americans were glued to their television as a U.S. military continued Operation Desert Storm. In late 1990, Iraq invaded neighboring Kuwait, sparking a conflict with severe international consequences. U.S. President George H.W. Bush responded with military action, unintentionally providing much-needed fuel for the infant 24-7 news cycle. Despite the gravity of the attention the conflict drew, New Mexicans focused on the Ricky Abeta case, but their appetite for the news was evident in the unprecedented local coverage. This was a story the people wanted to hear, and every reporter in the state wanted to tell it. I, I think anybody that will tell you that they've done it and it doesn't affect them is, 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 is probably wrong. It affects you initially uh, because you're cognizant of that, and occasionally you'll you'll remember you're on there but after a while you kind of forget you just you just go about your business you do have to to be real careful i i think that you don't uh do some of the things you normally might do uh if cameras aren't in there all the time henry was working under a magnifying glass with reporters and public opinion glaring down judging every decision an aspect of the investigation and charges. On top of that, things were moving extremely fast. From the incident to the start of the trial was only nine months, a timeline that is unheard of for a homicide case of this magnitude. Thankfully, both sides of the aisle had seasoned attorneys who didn't shy away from the theater of it all. I had known Gary, and, and Gary's a very good defense attorney. To me... I'd rather have somebody like him who I knew uh, they were going to do a good job and a competent job. And I wasn't going to have to worry about um, any uh, arguments later of ineffective assistance of counsel or, or any of that thing. So, um, you know, I didn't, and, and he was an honest guy. He is an honest guy. Um, you know, he's just, he's just a very good trial attorney. And so uh, I was glad he was on the other side. An opening statement is a critical moment for a prosecutor. It is the first time the prosecution lays out from beginning to end the state's case against the defendant. Opening statements for homicide trials have razor-thin margins with no room for error. Many prosecutors simply try not to mess up rather than seize an opportunity that could be staring them in the face. Since the beginning of this journey... Henry didn't shy away from the moment. He was a main character in this story, and for the opening statement, all the attention of the press, the public, the jury, the victims, and Ricky would be on him. The opening statement to me is, and, and, and I know a lot of different people will say um, what they feel is the most important trial, but I've always believed and still do believe that the opening statement is for a prosecutor is critically important. And without an effective opening statement, 
uh, you know, you're swimming upstream the rest of the time trying to get a conviction. Um, and so I put a lot of time and effort into the opening statement. And I know all the rules, you know, you should keep your opening statement brief. You should try and make it less than 20 minutes or so. But I just felt in this particular case that there was so much to let the jury know what the evidence was going to show. I, I went over an hour. In fact, it was about an hour and 15 minutes. And I, I could see the, the interest in them, which is why I never like try to hurry through it or wrap it up really quickly. Because I could see they were still engaged in it. Every trial has a climax. A moment that either turns the trajectory of its course or reaffirms the current path, clearing the debris leading to sentencing. The peak of the Ricky Abeta trial happened when Ricky took the stand. His defense was a convoluted mess of timelines and self-defense claims with little logic or support. But Gary Mitchell was a good defense attorney. So he used every tool in the toolbox for defending Ricky, who was 12 jurors away from being put to death. At that point, there was little doubt Ricky committed the murders, but his life was on the line, giving him little option but to risk cross-examination by Henry. Ricky testified, and, and, and whether he should or he shouldn't have, I know a lot of people say, well, you know, lawyer friends of mine, like, well, I would have never put him on the stand. or I can't believe he testified, but I don't think he had a choice but to testify. I mean, one, he didn't have any kind of significant criminal history, so I wasn't going to be able to say impeach him with any any prior felony convictions or anything like that. So the jury wasn't going to hear uh, that kind of evidence. And the other thing is he had been in the courtroom, but, you know, like now we're going on three months of this trial, you know, almost three months of it. And he's, you know, he's been there and he, in these long trials, I think one of the things that that happens is that if the defendant behaves and acts properly in the courtroom, I think after a while the jury begins to feel uh, like they're they're incapable almost of doing what they're accused of doing. Uh, and I think you have to be really cognizant of that as a prosecutor, because he was very well behaved. He was very polite. You know, he even you know, treated everybody with respect in the courtroom, including me. And I and I, I think the jurors all see that. They see everything. You always have to be mindful of that. So yeah, he 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 went up to testify and like I said, he had this kind of trying to combine all these uh, weird theories into one cohesive testimony. I, I just think it was a, it was a tough ask of anybody. The Chimayo Massacre was the deadliest mass murder in New Mexico history. It is a story of the consequences of domestic violence combined with the easy access to firearms. We've grown a callous to news coverage of gun violence. There is a mass shooting nearly every day in America with three or more victims minimum. Their frequency is numbing, unbearable, and heartbreaking. News media could spend their entire 24-hour cycle reporting on these events. People murdering other people with a firearm is a tragic fixture in American life. There is no escaping it, for 79% of all homicides are a result of gun violence. 
The nature of such events doesn't feel real until it happens in your town. Chimayo in northern New Mexico felt the concussion of such a tragedy as it vibrated throughout the state. However, few communities have the opportunity for retribution in the form of capital punishment. I think, really, I think part of my argument in, in the death penalty phase, and that is the picture you see me with Glenn Huber, that's from the penalty phase. And so my argument to the jury was that we asked police to protect us. We asked police to run into the fire, you know? I mean, not like a fireman runs into the fire. We asked them to run into gunfire. You know, we asked them to do things that we wouldn't do for ourselves. And what we need to do and what I felt we need to do was protect them. You know, somebody has to protect the protectors. And and so I felt really strongly that that should happen. But I also understood that it's not my decision. All it takes is one person to not want to get the death penalty, and you don't get the death penalty. The people of Chimayo were torn on the issue. The Albuquerque Journal published a story on November 23, 1991, where correspondent Tom Sharp interviewed 14 people in Chimayo. Half opposed the death penalty, but nearly all of them declined to have their names cited in the article as they were acquaintances or had relationships with the Abeta family. After all, he was one of their own. And they were forced to live with this decision and this incident forever. Henry did his best to carry the weight of the situation. He visited the crime scene on that cold January day. He spent nights and weekends building a case while still performing his duties as deputy district attorney. He worked and worked and worked. And then one day, it was done. As the jury deliberated, he put the weight down and took a moment to breathe. The decision was now in the hands of 12 people from the Chumayo community. All Henry, Ricky, Gary Mitchell, the victims, the police, and everyone fixated on their television and newspapers. All they could do was wait. Next time on The Murder Inn, we get the verdict. See you then. <laughs>